0: and we are live with our 30th episode of absolute absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth say hi. Hey
1: everybody, welcome once again to our uh, to our wonderful uh, rambling episodes, right? Um, Ken and I's brain dump, but I guess we do invite people on, right Ken?
0: Yeah. We do manage to do that. So, Um, and speaking of that, uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna properly introduce tonight's guest. Uh, It's awesome to have him on. And uh, so it's Dave Ferguson. He is, so like, this is kind of funny for me because on this podcast are the two people that interviewed me for my first official AppSec job. So I've got Dave Ferguson and Seth Law. You know, both both people interview me, so it's it's kind of interesting to be on this podcast with you guys. Um, But yeah, so Dave Ferguson's our guest tonight. Dave is the director of uh, product development at uh, for web application security at Qualys. Um, We worked with both Seth and I worked with Dave Ferguson at Fishnet. Dave's worked at Veracode, Saber, um, and as I said, most 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 recently Qualys. Uh, He's spoken at Boston Application Security Conference, LastCon, Converge uh, Conference, Triangle InfoSec 2016. He has a blog, and I'm going to put the link on here shortly to that blog. But um, yeah, Dave has so much experience in the application field, application security field. We're happy to have him on. Dave, thank you for joining us.
2: Hey, Ken, Seth. Great to be here. I appreciate you inviting me.
0: It's so weird to have you two. Uh, to, yeah, it's just crazy. So, so Ken, tell us about your
1: experience with application security. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No. We're, we're interviewing Explain Dave. Explain
2: right? cross-site request forgery.
1: Yeah, there you go. That, one, that was the fun one, right? That was, was like,
2: my favorite question.
1: I seem to remember you asking that on and off, right? <laughs> Put yeah, the pressure so, on. Yeah, so Dave and I were, you know, uh, I mean, I can't remember at that time, Like I might have been senior, or you were senior, or we were both principals at Fishnet for a while there. Um, I mean, those were the good old days, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I went went from a a newbie with no security experience in 2006 when I started there um, to senior security consultant to principal security consultant and then managing consultant. And both of us were managing consultants towards the end there.
1: You were the first
0: person... I've ever seen give security training. Now I think about it, Dave, so yep. that class you gave when you came here to Virginia, that was the first time I'd ever attended a security, uh, secure code, uh, training course.
2: Yeah, we did that quite a bit back then. Um, took over from, from Matt Flick who did it initially, but, uh, yep, that was a, that was a fun time to to go in and teach developers about security. Um, so, uh, you get some students that, Really into it, and would, uh, and then some say, "Why am I here?" So, <laughs> so, so what you're, you're saying know. is,
1: yeah, not much has changed, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Probably not. It's been a while since I taught any classes, but I'm sure nothing as much has changed. But it's great when you Come find those that are interested. You, you know, the, those are the guys that uh, should be the security champions in the in the at the at the organization.
1: Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I was going to say I thought you had fixed it all, and that's why you moved back onto the product side. <laughs> There's no new challenges on the, on the consulting side, right?
2: Yeah. We fixed everything.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> good to know. So can, we can just call it now, the, the <laughs> podcast and everything we're done.
0: We're done. Dave Steph's fixed. fixed. No no worries. Yeah. No worries. Cool. Well, you know, so Seth and I obviously know you really well. Uh, and clearly there are people watching who don't know you as well. That's why we have you on. So Dave, if you would be so kind as to share your origin story, your background, how you got into application security, your your path to InfoSec for folks, I greatly appreciate it.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, my background's probably a little bit different than others. So I started as an engineer. Um, I got an aerospace engineering degree. Um, I had grand visions of working on air breathing propulsion engines at, for GE or Pratt & Whitney or some such thing. Um, but unfortunately I graduated at th- when the cold war had ended and what were aerospace engineers there's doing, um, in the early nineties, they were getting laid off. So I had no job opportunities, uh, ended up getting a job though, um, as an engineer, but I was, I was doing a lot of programming in that job, um, specifically C and C++. And I didn't know C and C++. So I had to learn it on the job. Um, turned out I liked programming better than I liked engineering. So, um, in the late nineties, I took another job, um, and started doing Java web development. So, um, started doing Java servlets. You know, this is before JSPs existed. And then when JSPs came out, started doing JSPs, which is before things like frameworks, like struts came out. So I was doing like really, you know, raw bare bones web app development at that time. um, So I did that for like eight years, and towards the end of that, 2004-ish, I started to hear about attacks on web applications, things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting. Um, Didn't know what those things were, so started kind of looking into it, found OWASP, um, took a a day-long course uh, that was being offered. I was in Kansas City at the time. And I just ate ate everything up in that course, and decided, you know what, I think this application security thing may be important. So I'm going to look into maybe see if there's any jobs in that area. And sure enough, uh, throughout 2005, uh, I found Fishnet Security, which was also based in Kansas City, and they were looking for consultants. But I had no security experience, so um, they kind of took a chance on me, uh, just with my web development background and technical background. So I started there in 06 and um, just took to it like a fish to water and ended up, um, you know, really loving my work there. Um, that year in October, uh, I let Netflix know that there was this thing called cross-site request forgery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it all then, comes back. We just had Netflix, yeah. Netflix's AppSec Manager on a couple episodes ago, and now we've got, you know, Yep. It's the C-Surf re-emerging, so conversation.
2: In 2006, uh, there was just a DVD by the mail delivery service, right? There was no streaming. Uh, but they didn't have anyone that knew what Cross-Site Request Forgery was, believe it or not. Um, now I have, a, I have a good friend that, that's at Netflix and did a talk at Black Hat, and 2,000 people attended, and uh, Will Bankston. Uh, I don't know if you guys know him, but... Um, I do, I do. Okay, so Will's a great guy and works at Netflix now. And, uh, but in 2006, I was the one that, that let them know that their website had no protection against cross-site request forgery. So you could do all kinds of crazy things, like you could uh, add movies to uh, someone's rental queue um, without their knowledge. You could change uh, their shipping address so you could get their DVDs. You could uh, uh, change. You could actually change the password on their account. Because uh, they didn't, have, they did their uh, form didn't require entry of the current password, nor did it have any cross site request forgery protection. So, c surf was a fun fun thing back then, um, and that that was literally my first year in AppSec. And you know, CNET picked it up, USA Today picked it up, um, news story, um, Netflix yeah. down downplayed it a lot. You know, oh no, cust- no, no customer details were at risk, blah blah blah, but.
0: Yeah, to give some context like what's funny is while I worked at Fishnet cuz I remember telling I remember us having this conversation cuz I was I was looking for references for Sea Surf like pub- publicly and I was like, "Dave, was this you that did this article?" cuz it, like, it was like the the that you know, this is so long ago. This was, there were there wasn't a lot and it was one of the handful of articles I actually published about Sea Surf in the wild. And uh yeah, sure enough it was it was you. That was crazy. I still remember that conversation. It was like surprising that's how little sea surf was really like acknowledged and out there at the time yeah i, I mean
1: back then that was like i don't even think Seasurf surf was on the top 10 in 2003 was it, it no it came out
2: it, it made an appearance in 2007 for the first Seven,
1: time right? yeah, yeah that's right yeah because i like i mean when i talk Seasurf surf nowadays that's still the example that i use because it was such you know it was so easy to actually see how it worked, right? You know, the endpoints that were exposed, the session writing that went on and, and how it acted. Um, I mean, it was, it was impressive, right? So I, like,
2: yeah, that I, was I wasn't even looking for it. Honestly, I, I was a Netflix subscriber. And I was just on my, uh, on my Netflix account one day. And I just learned about Surf and was looking at the URLs. There were get requests that, you know, actually changed, you know, if you wanted to add a movie to your queue, it was a get request, not a post. So I could see the URL. I'm like, there's nothing in there that would prevent anyone from doing this attack, right? So I did a few tests and uh, sure enough, um, you could do some really interesting things. Um, so I found, after a week, I found someone at Netflix to pay attention to me. I was I was doing responsible disclosure and the whole thing, right? But it took a week to find anybody that would listen to me. And then once they they li- they listened to me on the phone and and said, um, okay. All right. Thank you. And then they hung up and, uh, and then a month went by and I was, I would check it every day. Is it anything changing? A month went by. Finally, they added like, um, a token in the request, uh, that would, that would be changing that that would prevent the attack. So, um, but, um, at the time and that, that's when I disclosed it publicly after they had added that fix to it. Uh, but the thing is, um, the um the fix that they did um i think it didn't fix i'd have to go back and look but i don't think it fixed every instance of SeaSurf surf at the time but it was it was close enough it fixed the worst ones
0: cool so it was kind of an early kind of attempt to to, to mitigate that yeah. so hey i was going to ask you around this time that was your you were is this when you started doing OWASP volunteering around that same time was that your vehicle to like to be more involved in the community to learn, learn more about ABSEG? It,
2: it was, um, I, I, ended up leading the Kansas city chapter there, uh, for, well, it was less than a year because I ended up moving to, to Texas, but, um, I did, I got involved in the local low chapter. It was kind of defunct at that point. Um, Arian Evans had kind of started it, I believe, and he was leader for a while and then he, uh, he had left and went to California. So, uh, that opened up me to become the chapter leader there and, so That was a good experience, you know um, recruiting speakers was the most difficult things b- back then, um, so that was two thousand seven uh, but uh, yeah, I've been in, involved in OWASP really since two thousand late two thousand six early two thousand seven and uh wrote the oh another thing I did was on Fishnet uh, when I was doing the pen testing you know application assessments day in and day out. Uh, I was finding that the forgot password feature was uh, of these web apps was completely. Insecure in most cases, Uh, you know, either it delivered a temporary password by email or it it, it did, you know, something that invariably was not secure. And so I uh, kind of collected all this information, about all these assessments I was doing and and wrote a white paper um, that was then the basis for the OWASP forgot password cheat sheet. So that's that's still out there today. It's been, you know, modified and enhanced over time. Uh, but that was probably two thousand two thousand eight two thousand and nine time frame, so that was my the one cheat sheet that i I have to my credit
0: yeah w- once again, something we all used for reference when we would write reports <laughs> G- genuinely that that was what we all kind of looked to was that advice
2: yeah and, and there 's yeah. nothing technically advanced about it it's it 's mostly common sense in my opinion, but not everyone was doing it right. most people were not doing it right.
1: Yeah, and you'd be surprised, right? I mean, I mean, we still run into quite a bit of that where people—the forgot password is kind of the, the forgive me, Kim, redheaded stepchild of um, authentication and authorization, or the authentication function, right? We forget about it a lot. So, I mean, it's it's still one of my favorite places to to poke holes in when I'm looking at a web app, right, or even a mobile app, right? It seems like we repeat this cycle of. Hey, you know we do forgot password here, but now we have an API endpoint that does the same thing, and <laughs> we have just as many problems with it. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I remember you doing that uh, that paper and that uh, that research. We did we did post some links to all of that. I even found like the SC magazine article for uh, CSRF or CSRF that I threw up there. So if people are interested to read about it, they can.
2: Yep. Cool. So. Um... So that was kind of the fishnet timeframe, um, but uh, so that, I guess that kind of covers my origin story. Um, but there is one interesting sort of side conversation that uh, happened um, when I was, before I started in security. You know, I was writing web apps, and I was I was working for a company that wrote web applications for the higher education industry, so colleges and universities. Things for like paying your bill and registering for classes and those kind of things. Um, web web front end for that kind of process. Um, this was like two thousand two, two thousand one, two thousand two time frame that I was writing these web apps. And like I said, it was JSPs at the time, straight JSP apps. And uh, like ten years later, uh, actually, at this point now, I've had two children who I've gone on to pay their tuition for their college <laughs> and it was using my web app to pay the, their tuition that I wrote. <laughs> so, I mean, I pulled up, I did view source. I'm like, I wrote this web app here. I am paying tuition on it.
1: <laughs>
0: what a weird, what a <laughs> weird circle. It, <laughs> yeah, <that is> odd.
2: <laughs> it was two different colleges too. It wasn't even the same college. So, uh,
0: wait, so for how long was the code up? Like, was it,
2: that, just, that code uh, has been in production for almost for more than 15 years. Oh I mean, it's God, it's, it's been modified. It's been modified, so it's not my original code. It's been enhanced, modified over time, but it's probably seventy five, eighty percent the same.
0: That sounds right. And when people are like, "Oh, uh, how do vulnerabilities get introduced?"
2: <laughs> yeah, that- and I, when I wrote that, I didn't know anything about any of the uh, vulnerabilities, so. Um, I, but I didn't. I, I wish I had had the foresight to build in some sort of a back door for myself that I could, like, maybe bypass that tuition payment.
1: <laughs> At least reduction, you know, a nice 20% reduction. Something, <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> you know, some special parameter with a, a unique key that no one would ever guess, but I had hidden away somewhere for just in the future. <laughs>
0: And remember that, when you're reviewing source code, to look for backdoors <laughs> in source code.
2: Yeah, static analysis, though, would have definitely caught that, I think. Um, well, I don't know, depending on the quality of the st- static analysis tool.
1: You oh, just embedded in one of the libraries somewhere. You're, you're fine. <laughs> it's no big deal.
2: Yeah.
0: Cool. So, so can you tell folks a little bit about what you currently do at Qualys?
2: Yeah, so, um, well, kind of another interesting fact there is when I started at Fishnet in 2006, I started to use some new tools that I'd never used before, and one of them was Qualys. At that time, it was, you know, network infrastructure scans. They didn't know web app scans uh, from Qualys at that time. But, um, so I was using Qualys, uh, and I used uh, web, Inspect, web Inspect for web app scans. And at the time, I remember not really understanding the difference between the two types of scans. <laughs> so that's how green I was. Um, and now here I am at Qualys. Um, I'm the product manager, actually. Um, official title is director of product management for web application scanning here at Qualys. So um, I'm responsible for the direction of the product, uh, for um, enhancements, roadmap, and also, you know, customer satisfaction, basically everything about the product. Um, we have over 3,000 customers on our web app scanning product, um, growing all the time. And, uh, so it's a challenging role, but I get to use a little bit of everything I've done in the past. I mean, I, you know, I did the web development, so I I know that side of things. I work with developers every day, so that helps. Um, you know, the consulting side of the fishnet when I was doing application assessments, I mean, that's what our tool basically is. It's an automated application pen test. So that helps. Um, I also another um, haven't talked about it yet, but after I left Fishnet, I went to Vericode, also a vendor, uh, software as a service, cloud based, just like Qualys. So I you know I have that experience under my belt that helps me with my current job. Um, and then after Veracode, um, I went to work for Sabre Corporation, uh, which is a in the, in the travel industry, basically technology for the travel industry. And uh, I was on the inf- information security team there, so enterprise security job. Um, that that was kind of one area that I didn't have any experience with. You know, here I was, you know, at Fishnet, I would go into clients and talk about what they needed to do to fix their problems at Vericode I would go and I would sell Vericode services to some big enterprise. Uh, But I had never worked at a big enterprise myself um, in an InfoSec role. So I did that for a little over two years and that was also a great experience. Um, I got to see down the trenches, how InfoSec people, how their lives are every day and, um, so I kind of all those different experiences in my past have uh, helped me in what I do now. Um, so I, I understand like, our customer's perspective. Um, I understand how to uh, make the product better. Um, of course, there's a lot of different aspects to that. You know, which, uh, which vulnerabilities do you need to focus on in the scanning tool? Um, do you need to enhance the UI or do you really need to focus on the scanning engine? Do you somehow balance and do both? Um, Cause uh, you know, we've, at Qualys, we really focus on enterprise features for um, helping our customers be successful with their web app scanning program and and their security program in general. So that's what I'm doing now. Um, uh, enjoy it. I Get to travel conferences. Missed you guys at Black Hat this year, but I usually see you there, Black Hat yeah. and DEF CON.
0: Usually, just this year was a little bit different. We're both kind of we're both slammed. I mean yeah. I think yeah. That was a crazy and you left bef, bef, you left we were just talking about it before you left uh on Friday so you you weren't there for I the did. whole weekend which was you know the more majority of the time I was
2: there uh, but the all of two days I was there. Yep, I wasn't there for the craziness of Defcon this year. So.
1: That's you okay with the with the 26,000 28,000 people whatever that are there now. You don't even run into anybody that you know as it is, right? You have to coordinate <laughs>
0: Which is funny because I was about to make a comment on how small the security world is. Because <laughs> Dave, Dave, Dave uh, it was funny. I, if, I, if I remember correctly, I was working at Living Social and I hop on a call about Veracode, and because uh, we were looking at it as a solution for some of our PHP apps. I think it, I, th- I think it was you, Dave. You were on the. It was it was the the you know the sales guy, and you. Yeah, <laughs> so weird. I remember
2: that. I didn't remember it until you just mentioned it right now, but yes, I was on that call.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, and uh, so was I, I literally just left fishnet to go to living social. So that was the strangest thing. Like here's my, my former kind of boss, you know, you're a principal and now uh, you're um, pitching me products for codes. So. <laughs> so yeah, when we talk about the appsec community being small, it definitely, it definitely is. But yeah. Uh. So like one of the questions I had was from 2013 to 2018. What, what in terms of, you know, I'm just giving out a a general range of time, but like, what are the, the, the differences in terms of like what a dynamic scanner needs to be able to handle? Like what are, or even, you know, what are the things that you're facing today that you weren't facing a year or two ago? Like what's changing? What do you foresee being different? I'd love to hear your insight on that.
2: Well, I think, uh, Dynamic scanning, there's always going to be a need for it, but I think what's changed is it's um, probably a, a piece of just a piece of the puzzle now, where maybe it used to be more the main way testing method of a web app. Um, so I think now you need to look at um, you know different approaches, especially for your business critical, mission critical web apps. Um, you know you got to do Pen testing to find business logic flaws or authenticate, you know, weird convoluted authentication issues that an automated um, tool could never find. Um, And then there's the software composition analysis that, um, you know, it seems to be a lot of the breaches happening now are from vulnerable components um, being sucked into the to the application that you know the developers at the organization didn't write but, uh, you know, the struts, volumes, or or whatever, whatever what have you. Um, So it's, I think, mainly what's changed is the need to have a more well-rounded testing approach. Um, One thing that (laughs) I personally, uh, it's funny because we just talked about teaching developers secure code training. Um, I actually, this may be uh, controversial, but I don't, I don't know that that's the most valuable use of um, time and money, for, uh, because because of the fact that some students don't get much out of it. I would even say maybe most of them don't get much out of it. Uh, and then you don't know if those students in the class are actually going to be writing critical code in the in the application. Um, so. Uh, but my is, do you my think opinion is developers just don't need that training um, necessarily. But the testing aspect is more important.
0: Do you think so? I mean, is it is it is it the quality of the training or the type of training, or is it just it doesn't matter if it's the best you know trainer you can think of and the best sort of like interactive? They're going to remember this content type of training. Um, like it doesn't matter. It's just not necessarily. Uh, uh, applicable to the developer or you know definitely expand because it is controversial it is a definitely a controversial opinion
2: i think that it's mostly about the students um even if you have the best trainer like jim manico right awesome trainer you guys just had on um uh he's like the, the the best trainer there is but if you have students that just don't care then it's not going to matter. Um, so I think that the security champions that, that you've identified, those guys should definitely be going to secure code training uh, because they can have the knowledge, you know, uh, basically um, there'll be boots on the ground uh, on, the t- on the development teams. Uh, I, so I think, you know, that inside um, knowledge is better than training 100% of developers Just because you don't, I think like a a new developer who's just coming into the field, um, they may not be actually coding a lot of uh, uh, applications where the vulnerabilities are introduced. Um, Especially with the frameworks now that kind of prevent a lot of the vulnerabilities. Um, So I I, I like the idea and I, I believe it's more valuable to have really highly trained and highly educated and motivated security champions versus blindly training everybody, you know, a hundred percent of developers on secure code training.
0: And to like kind of clarify what, um, Dave's saying with regards to like frameworks taking care of stuff, like we had mentioned cross site request, forger, request forgery earlier, and that's something that can be automated away with, uh, um, like rails. It's automatic with, uh, with uh, Django and node you can easily implement c surf protections um, with uh, with cross-site scripting a lot of the templating languages that frameworks offer automatically escape I mean there are definitely ways to screw it up but there are built-in ways to or there are built in it's built into auto encode auto escape uh, you know potentially malicious user supplied input I would say there's uh, ORMs and Active Record. We've talked about Active Record patterns and ORM helping to prevent um, against SQL injection. Things like Link or uh, Rails Active Record um, or Hibernate. Um, so there's there's that uh, for for SQL injection. Um, that having been said, I kind of I'll say that I kind of differ. A little bit on the thinking about how you get your security champions, because while you're saying, you know, you want your security champions to sort of be in the training because they're going to be motivated to actually, um, you know, learn. Um, One thing that I talked about before, I don't know if it was on this podcast, was we had uh, at Living Social. We did the Stripe CTF and publicized it Uh, Well, the developers brought it up to us. And then we like obviously spread the word. Um, about the Stripe CTF, because it was like an AppSec sort of focused uh, CTF. And from that um, emerged security champions. So, like, I think you're talking more about instructor-led training, but I think that there's... uh, Yeah, and but I do think there's other mediums and other types of training where you can certainly uh, identify your security champions. And then maybe at that point, you know, those are the folks you want to progress to another level of, like, instructor-led training.
2: <clears throat> yeah, or, or senior senior level people, I think, would get more out of it than than junior level people. To be on secure code training, uh, in my opinion. Um,
1: yeah, I I mean, I mean, like I I can see your point, Dave. On you know having trained developers in the past, just knowing the, uh, the interactions that I have with developers based on their experience varies so widely, and it's mainly due to their interest in the topic level, right? But when you look at the, like the compliance frameworks don't give you an option, You look at PCI or, you know, FFIC or whatever, right? Like all these different compliance frameworks basically go out and they say, your developers must have secure code training, period. Um, And so most of them do do turn to, uh, you know, instructor led training, um, or like some of like the, the secure Code warrior, some of the other like online trainings to actually fulfill that requirement. But I do question how much of that is actually sinking in.
2: Yeah, especially for I mean, I remember when when we were teaching the class, uh, uh, Seth, uh, that there would be people in the in the uh, um, in the class that they were. Like why why am I learning about encoding html i I do backend development you know yeah they do yep. like they interact they're like mainframe people or they they wrote glue code to connect two systems internally or something, and for those people, it probably is a waste of time to talk about HTML encoding and
1: yeah, I mean it's really hard to target a you know a training course like a a generic secure code coding course when you don't know the developers that are going to be sitting in there, right? It just you know is. What?
0: That has totally happened to, to, well, I know myself and I'm sure all, all of you, like you go and you, you have this awesome, well, in your opinion, awesome course. Obviously no one's ever like, oh, I'm going to deliver a shit course. Like <laughs> you have what you feel is a really solid course and you're going to go deliver it and you work with the security team and they're, you know, your point of contact, your security point, point of contact at the company you go to give the training and then and this is something we talked about with Jim and then they put in you know the wrong folks completely like you're talking about where I have I have literally had classes that mostly consisted of uh, people that do QA um, people that do some CSS and design work and maybe a couple back-end people and, and that's it and like maybe one one or two people from the security team who do like kind of everything not just like appsec they just do everything and you know they thought it might be interesting and it's, and i mean how do you develop a, a course that that is right for those people the the, the answer is you don't not not altogether i don't yeah. i don't think you do
1: well yeah and then, and then if it's specific like oh we're talking secure code coding in java right Okay, that that front end developer may touch a JSP once every two years, but most of it is just to insert an import statement, right? And that's it. Um, and so you, you've, oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so I, I guess it's not as controversial as you <laughs> as as you thought it would be because well, I uh, yeah, it's not.
2: It's not a problem, I think with the training itself or the secure code, the concept of secure credit. It's a, pro- it's a problem of execution. Like the organization that wants to send developers to see, they want they want developers to write secure code. So they blindly pick names off a big list and say, okay, you 20 go this day, U 20 go this day. And, um, but the, there's not any like, they don't look at what these developers actually do. They're just like you're put in a big bucket and there's, there's such variety in what developers do. Um, you know, maybe 25% might actually get something out of it uh, in their daily work.
1: I can't, I can't initially like those initial courses that we did, I can't tell you how many times I had like a project manager in there that, that didn't know what an IDE was. Right. And I like, I'm just like, I, I don't know what to do with you for eight hours.
2: Yes. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Exactly.
1: Yep. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I I mean, to be fair, it's gotten better since then, but I almost feel like it's a, what you're saying, it's a miscommunication problem. It's a problem with understanding what developers need and the organization wants a one size fits all approach, right? They want to be able to say, oh, you're a developer all right, you're coming on board. We're going to give you this training your first week. And it means that you are certified, chink, chink, right? Yeah. And you will never write a SQL injection vulnerability. Yes, you may just be a, you know, mobile app, React native developer, but you will never like, you know, have this problem that was a really big problem 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. So, but, so how do you think that we change that, that, paradigm or how do we actually like push that edge and get those people to understand this
0: yeah because i'll I'll add this to it people think it's it's as simple as like well why don't you just tell the security point of contact whoa hold on like (laughs) there are so many layers in between usually a consultant and the actual point of contact at security and even if your point of contact at security at this on the security team was the person who even purchased the training and then within their company there's likely levels of different people coordinating to see who will come to the training and often it's like please come to the training send one or two people from departments and then so that's on their side there's this whole like it gets convoluted on who's actually showing up and then on the the actual procurement side you're sitting there with sales pre-sales you know project managers uh you know the the, the head of appsec for the consultancy. And then eventually somehow in there, you're the one who becomes the person that, you know, You all that stuff happens before you ever get to it. And you're like told to deliver a course. So it's not as simple as just saying like, oh, well just talk to your security point of contact, tell them, you know, who needs to come. It's it, 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 it yeah. convoluted. So yeah, all yeah. that in mind, what's your, <laughs> how does that get fixed? <laughs> solve it for us, Dave. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I think um, it, it would have to just, communicating the best you can about what the course is who 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 would benefit from it and who would not benefit from it and um so whoever your contact is or whatever you can do up front before you show up to do the training um you know do that legwork up front to try to you know make it clear what it's for and um but you but in the end you can't control who shows up and you know it's the organization decides who needs to be there
0: yeah yeah i was going to mention one of the uh, one of the people made an interesting one of the viewers made an interesting comment um i don't know the real name just this handle but um basically they said uh in the netherlands out of a four-year computer science degree um there's a two-month period of like just security training kind of security best practices from like the outset so it's sort of built into the into the computer science path Um, and their point being that it's better to, to kind of just that being like a core fundamental, just like, you know, math would be considered a a fundamental or chemistry or whatever the case is, English. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's awesome. I think like to, to, to have security as part of a a core fundamental piece, but like, I don't know if that happens currently. We should get somebody on who's gone to college recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs> some, some schmuck that paid five hundred thousand in tuition. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's a good idea because it's been a while since since we've been to college, and certainly cybersecurity didn't exist when I was in college. So,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, the one security course that I had in, or the the one that touched on security right, in college was all cryptography. Right, that was the only thing yeah. that they wanted to talk about. So, I mean, I know it, I know, I definitely know it's changed since then, but yeah, we could, we could get somebody on to talk through that.
2: Well, um, just to kind of wrap up the discussion on training as I, I remember a Twitter poll a while ago that uh, someone had posed and said, like, if you have a web application, you don't know anything about its security posture or, or or if, if, if no, no, take that back. The The phrasing was, what is the best way to start off an application security program? when you're not doing anything and like the choices were like um, developer secure code training, dynamic scan, static code analysis, and uh, something else. And um, most people in the results of the poll chose developer secure code training. You know, if you're not doing anything, how do you start? And I didn't, I didn't, I chose dynamic scan because you can very quickly get an idea of what your security posture looks like with a dynamic scan um, it's quick and easy. You can maybe get some, uh, vulnerabilities fixed quickly cause you can find out about them. Um, what's developer secure code training going to do for you? Like in the near term, not a lot. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. It's just, um, it's one piece of the puzzle and it has to be done right. If, you know, if possible.
0: There's a couple of things. Uh, Chris Gates made a good point. He said, you know, this is a, uh, uh, in terms of, you know, people not caring who they send, it might be a compliance requirements. They're just like, these people have to go do secure co-training box checked. So that's totally, totally feasible. Uh, Definitely seen that before. Uh, Interestingly, Brian Gray said um, it's a core security is a core um, component uh, at CMU. So somebody who knows about the curriculum the more modern curriculum says that uh, in at least one place there's a security is a, a core component. So
1: see and I, I mean I that that's great but I also think I saw I also see CMU as more on the forefront of security in general, right? They always have been. I mean we're talking Carnegie Mellon, Mellon right? And they've always been more concerned about security than, say, your local community college, right? They, they just have. It's going to be very dependent on who's teaching those courses, who's actually there. So, yes, it's great that it, it's filtering down. I'm sure if you looked at, like, any of the, the online MIT courses, security is going to be in there because it is what the engineers talk about, right? And it is what, you know, what we're concentrating on more and more, But the the filter down to the majority of developers is probably not as much as we think when we look at those big, big universities or big programs.
0: So when people run dynamic scans, like you said that it gives you a pretty good, like a quick way to kind of gauge security posture of an app. Um, So let's, let's delve into that real quick, or it doesn't have to be quick. Let's just delve into it. Um, So what are kind of the things that sort of stand out from results that like, that kind of point to, okay, you need some work done to secure your application. Like what are the typical things that would come, that come back from, from those scans that indicate,
2: yeah. It's, it's still cross-site scripting. <laughs> um, it's uh, unencoded characters getting sent back in the response and, um, But typically you see that with some of the older legacy web apps that are getting scanned. Um, Don't see it a lot with the more, you know, Angular, React apps, the, you know, heavy Ajax, single page app type of things as much. Um, A lot of times because the response is not text slash HTML content type. It's it's application JSON or something. So it's not going to be exploitable um, necessarily. But uh, still, cross-site scripting—we're seeing that a lot in our customer scans, um, just because so so many web apps still out there that are, were built four, five, six, or more years ago.
1: Yeah, your, we, your app ten, fifteen years ago—no cross-site <laughs> scripting. My app, app. Right? none. It's, I wrote. it's secure. Okay and for Uh, those that aren't
0: following along on that like the the text html being that the browser if you if you put in script alert one right or script alert xss the browser renders it back uh, exactly then when it sees text html it assumes that's html content renders that Uh, and then for the json type it's different it's not it's not interpreting that content as html and assuming it should render that html string the difference being when it hits the single page, well, you know, the angular react single page or whatever JavaScript's running in the, the browser, then something might happen. You might be vulnerable. So my question, Dave is like, uh, how, I mean, I would assume single page apps pre- pre- present a huge risk or a, not a huge risk, sorry, a huge problem in the sense of a dynamic scanner working. Is that something you guys have had to tackle or you, you know, you dealt with or, because really, I know that you need, to get, you need to be able to simulate DOM events in order for that flow to, to sort of occur, and then you need to ad, analyze like, the results in the DOM. So I'm curious, right. um, yeah, if you're having that.
2: You're absolutely right. Um, so our sc- scanner at Qualys, our web app scanning uh, product, it, it has a browser engine built into it. And so you're absolutely right. The, the, um, the web pages need to render in that browser engine and then you need to fire events and see what requests happen, because um, it's really the requests that go to the server that's that's where the attack points are. And if you can't fire the JavaScript events in a single page app, you're not going to get any requests going to the server. So um, the the uh, we, we've had to adapt to these new technologies. Um, you know, Angular a couple of years ago, React for the last year or so has been really super popular. And the crawling, the discoveries. Uh, Part of the uh, of the scan is really important because if you can't find the requests um, and the URLs and the links, you can't do the testing, and so you're going to miss vulnerabilities. So we uh, in Qualys product, we we built a um, sort of a in feature internal to the scanning engine called Smart Scan that's designed to handle those single page apps and um, a lot of you know the AJAX requests that happen as a result of the JavaScript events firing. Um, so, but even then, um, in an automated way, there's times when you have to help the scanner along to get through some sort of a workflow. Um, you know, if, if you have any kind of like a multi-step operation in the web app, uh, you know, there's a form, multiple forms that you have to get through and you have to enter certain type of data or certain values to get through that, that sequence, The scanner can't do it on its own um so there's that's where the configuration um, to get a better quality scan comes in and so we we use the um we have a chrome extension that qualis wrote called qualis browser recorder that allows you to uh record your steps and um and your activity in your browser so you can get through that workflow and you save that as a script and then you um, the, the tool then can play that script back to help get through the workflows. Um, so it's, it's like a lot of things. Um, with a dynamic scan, you can start very simple with an unauthenticated scan just by entering a URL. And you can certainly get results quickly that way. Uh, especially with a cloud-based scanner like ours, you don't even need to install anything. You just need to log in and enter a URL and go. Uh, but with the uh, authentication, um, you know, that's in one level to get through the authentication of the web app. And then also if you have that, those business workflows, um, that's another sort of advanced configuration that you can do. So it's all a matter of, you know, what, what kind of resources do you have? What type of web apps do you have? Um, the more time that you can spend configuring a scan, the, maybe the better those results will be. Uh, but the flexibility of any scanner there is important.
0: OK, so you're using sort of like the and, and if because there's you know, there's it could be like three once you fill in a form based off of what happens, there could be like three or four different paths or more or whatever that the 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 sequence goes through. So is that sort of like you as a uh, you as the tester um, or person configuring it, you just walk through you like can you literally just do, you know, each thing that might trigger the different sequence and it'll just like be a recorded set of steps and that's
2: it. Yeah. You can record multiple sequences and they'll all play back, uh, during the scan to, uh, at least during the crawling phase so that you can discover the Ajax requests or whatever requests are going to the server at that point. And then, uh, so those would be tested later on. Once those requests are recorded and you know what the requests look like, you know, if it's an Ajax request, it may be a post request with, you know, a JSON, um, payload or, you know, request body. So um, those are recorded during the uh, discovery or the crawling process. And then once that's done, the uh, the vulnerability test can be done because you know at that point what the request looks like, where are the injection points, whether it's, you know, name value pairs in the request or it's JSON payload. You can you, you can um, do your injections for, for SQL testing, uh, cross-site scripting, you know, um, open redirects, all those kind of things.
0: Are there any vulnerabilities that you've seen that, you, cause I mean, I imagine you all have a lot of metrics. Um, I mean, if you're using, if you're, if you're doing this in the cloud and like, I, I, obviously you would want to anonymize the the data, right. You're not going to like be like, Oh, this company's got these vulnerabilities every <laughs> year, you, you know, but you anonymize the data, but I'm sure you have the data in terms of like, are there any trends? Like, are you seeing less of one type of vulnerability or more of another type of vulnerability?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, we do have the anonymized data, uh, and I think the one thing that stands out is less and less cross-site request forgery. Oh,
1: um, interesting. Yeah. So, so, so even SQL injection, right? Like, I mean, I know from my like my own just anecdotal or like qualitative perspective, doing tests, I I see very few SQL injections compared to when we started testing, right? Like I, I remember it was every other app or so but nowadays it's if it's one in 10 that's a lot
2: yep i agree with you i would put sql injection uh, as much uh in the same category as as okay. surf as far as less and less over time um the um, we we yeah we we see less and less in the, of that uh things that we still see all the time are the the you know missing secure and http only on cookies um those sorts of things Um, You know, also the security headers, I mean, there's all kinds of security headers from CSP and, uh, you know, uh, X-Frame options and um, XSS protection, all the security headers and the responses that could be added. Typically, we we don't see a lot of web apps using those or taking advantage of those um, because it does take time to understand uh, the nuances, especially with CSP. Um, how to configure that and there's just, it's kind of an advanced topic to be honest and a lot of web apps are written quickly get it out the door no one spends a lot of time to really lock that down with. but the security headers is something that i think are not being taken advantage of out there in the world right now
0: oh By we age, would agree yes. with you for sure like we've had this conversation for a couple mm-hmm. podcasts and i think because jim was asking the uh, during the uh, ci what was this uh I can't remember the, the name of the uh, CSP uh Do you remember Seth the name of the, the the CSP directive that was somewhat lax but was like sort of just an bio
1: access origin? Right. No,
0: or... no, it was um well I'll figure it out.
1: Secure trans-
0: But it was no in CSP. Yeah. So yeah, it was a CSP directive that was basically like um kind of like a default um it was somewhat permissive but it was a start and the reason was the reason being that it's super difficult to implement a csp and then i guess for some folks to get the inline javascript out of there and and you know make it external and or put it into external files rather, rather than an inline uh but yeah you're right like we've talked about it csp is um for whatever reason you know it, it can be difficult and yeah at the same time you've mentioned xss still being something that's prevalent and it's like just you know put a it. policy around policy yeah. yeah yeah
2: it's
0: easy i mean it's, i think it's it, easy think but it's it can be time.
2: i think it'll 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 slowly be adopted over time um just like same site uh, attribute on cookies we really don't see that happening much but it's it's kind of a no-brainer to add that so i think over time it'll it'll start to be more prevalent It
0: is so easy. And the thing is, it is so easy to introduce XSS. I introduced XSS once because I didn't know that uh, um, the way uh, when you do uh, in Rails render, I think it was render plain text. Um, The assumption being that only text is rendered, right? Um, In that Rails version, it was uh, text HTML content type. So when I was recording back an error, uh, mainly for debugging with an OAuth flow, um, it was uh, unbeknownst to me, able to render in text HTML and render back whatever error. Which, if obviously, if you can put whatever you want in that error and have it echo back, you've got XSS. But it's easy to yeah. introduce, and CSP is just such an important piece of like preventing that yeah. or preventing it from being exploited. Well, yeah, it's
1: all those protections that are built in. I mean, nowadays the browser has so many different little knobs that you can twist, right? I and mean, back in the day, you know, or you know, I, I shouldn't say back in the day, but you know, years ago, right? All you could do was you had to protect it all on the server side um, and the browser would render whatever you sent to it. But nowadays you've got like some of those protections where, you know, you know, you're even you're just XX, you know, XSS protection header, right? That one uh, you know, it enables the engine that would detect that in Chrome and the newer browsers. But again, I, you know, I always say if somebody's still using, you know, IE6, right, they really are, they get what they deserve. You know, <laughs> but, um, but that being said, I, I still see, like I ran into an app where somebody had actually turned XSS protection off in the header, right? They'd gone to the trouble of implementing it, decided it wasn't worth it, and gone and turned it to zero instead of one and I'm just like, what are we doing here? Right. It is, you know, you're, you're going through all the trouble of actually implementing this header. Um, and then you're turning it off. Right. So, yeah.
0: What right. about serialization bones? Do you find any serialization bones out there?
2: Um, so our scanning engine detects serial, these serialization bones, but it's, it's really the CVEs, the known, the, the ones that are known in the frameworks already. Um, it's uh, it isn't going to go out and um, you know, discover some zero-day deserialization necessarily, uh, but it, it has checks for the for the known CVE IDs that are out there that are deserialization related. Um, and the thing that another uh, the, the big one that we're just adding uh, now or in the process of adding is out-of-band detection. So, server-side request forgery, SMTP injection, um, some of those with where you need a um, uh, like a, a third um, uh, external system that can um, identify the vulnerability through some DNS lookup. So we're adding those out of band detections. Um, so I don't have any statistics on that yet, but as soon as those new detections roll out in the scanner, I'm going to be interested to see how many, um, how many of those are out there. So I, Dave, is that something that Qualys would let you actually
1: blog about and put up some of those numbers, just anonymized to talk through is that, I mean that, that that'd be really interesting for you know us to talk about and collaborate on as far as you know what it is that you see from your scanning engine I, I mean that's super interesting to the community at large
2: yeah definitely um, the we're uh, all about that kind of information sharing so um, we'd have to collect the data uh, more more recently to see what's going on Um, but, um, yeah, I'll look into that, see if we can get something out there and there's some numbers for you. You
0: yeah. know, you guys talking about SSRF kind of made me think of, like, because I have noticed a, an uptick in people discussing SSRF and finding that that issue. And I'm wondering, like, I'm almost wondering if that yeah, is a result.
2: A lot of bug bounty uh, researchers are finding that. Those yeah. And
0: I'm wondering if the cause isn't partially just because we are – you know, deconstructing the monolith and having all these diff- different services talking to each other, or if it's just more a a, a greater set of bear pull or set of eyes that that's part of their like checklist, right? That they're familiar with, like, or they have good tests, we'll say for SSRF. Um, I, I don't know, but I have seen an uptick, like anecdotally, without hard stats. I've seen an uptick in it being discussed and found.
2: Yeah, it's it's something that um I think it's probably increasing be, just because of uh the interconnectivity and the, the the more systems are talking to each other in a programmatic way now whereas maybe in the past it was more oh here's a web app and there's a database and it's a one one-time thing but now it's just there, there's so many other uh, there's so much data being passed around from one system to another.
0: Yay, microservices. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's what it is, right?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, so, so uh, I wanted to switch topics since uh, um, the bug bounty thing came up. Um, so unfortunately I haven't had time. I mean, I wish bug bounties existed like maybe six, eight years ago. I would have really, really enjoyed it. Uh, but I did get, uh, for about a year and a half I did some bug bounties with a company called uh, UTest, test now called applause but um they uh not quite like bugcrowd or hackerone but it it was it was interesting because there would be projects and you could sign up for these projects if you were, if you were approved to be on the security testing team there um u test was mo- mainly their main focus was like test functional testing of mobile apps uh, but they had a, and they still have i believe a, a kind of a smaller security testing group so i participated in um that group for about a year and a half and that was a lot of fun because you would sign up and you'd basically um, start testing. You'd have a window for doing your tests and there'd be rules of engagement and a scope and all that. But it was mainly only certain people would be invited. So there might only be like four, five, six people on the team testing an application. So it was the scope was smaller, but there was a smaller team. So it was, and I was like the most senior person on the team. So I found a lot of stuff that, w- that was fun and, and you'd have to write it up and submit it kind of like writing a report back in the day as a consultant. But uh, in this case, you got paid per bug. Um, so that, that was interesting. Have you guys done bug bounties at all?
0: Well, the way you describe it sounds kind of like the participation we've done with Sinek uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, I've done a little bit of partition with, Participation with Synag. The problem is, I don't have like with those things. You you kind of have to spend a, a decent amount of. Basically, you have to concentrate for longer than my short attention spans, allowing me to concentrate. Since I do this, since I do the same thing for like a living every day, it's not necessarily like I want to go spend the whole also night doing that every night. You know what I mean? Like, so by the time something comes up, and then you know, then it, it it's within a four or five day window. You know, it's like I may get to it for a few hours, but I probably have other crap going on, too. So um, it wasn't super fruitful, but it is fun to occasionally go in there and just say, like, oh, what's in scope? Because, you know, the scope, there's always new stuff kind of rolling in that's in scope. And sometimes stuff's just really interesting. There was one that was like a uh, it was a government site that uh, is pretty important. And I won't like, I, you know, I won't disclose what it does, but it, it, it you had the source code and it was written in Golang and it was like awesome Like This is is pretty amazing that you get the chance to look under the hood of how this app's running. So it was nice, but I mean, I never really made any money off of it. I mean, I probably could if I, again, if like the the attention span wasn't so short.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you do have to focus for long periods of time and you may not find anything. And then you find out you wasted a few hours or you may find duplicates. Um, in fact there's a pretty good article uh, I just read yesterday uh, that um, someone had written about you know basically um, make sure if you're a bug bounty especially if you're doing bug bounties full- time make sure you take care of yourself because you can get like um, sucked into the bug bounty world where you work seven days a week 12 hours a day and um, and you can get burned out
0: I saw that as well. I'm posting an article right now. Did um, you read that? Yeah, I did. I, I read it. Uh, it was, um, what was this? Uh, Nathan, Nathan security is the right. handle
2: on Twitter. Yep. That's it. Yeah.
1: That's a, I mean, that's an interesting discussion. Cause it, I mean, it almost, it, it's like, I, I mean, I kind of feel like bug bounties are almost this like gamification of security, right? The leaderboards, the way that we approach it, we all have like our, um, you know our methodology right like this is our like game plan for finding vulnerabilities and we're racing against other people so the gamification of it actually does induce the same things that we that we see in gaming right and yeah. and that's what he's he's talking about right is you know it's very easy to get sucked in and spend 10 12 hours on a site right and like i, I did it for a good couple of months at one point where I was putting in you know, a fair amount of effort, and it, it, it did pay off, right? Uh, but exactly what you're saying as far as finding like duplicates or you know, finding things that are out of scope or you know, whatever, right? You know, there's a lot of things that you end up uncovering that may or may not actually make that time worth it. And so you've got to be really careful about how much time you spend and, and keep track of that but the whole gamification section also means that there's reputation points that go along with that right you want to yeah. be on that leaderboard you want to be in that top 100 list or top 50 list so you get you get the goods for the next round uh, especially on those invite ones and like it can be extremely detrimental to
2: real relationships and really like
1: living in the world shall we say
2: so. it can yeah it's it's a little bit like um addictive in some ways and kind of like gambling, uh, and cause there is money involved, but I remember doing the bounties. And when I was, when I was about to find something or I thought I found something and I just needed a little bit more testing to confirm it, my heart would actually start racing. Like, yeah. you know, um, man, this is, this is going to be money not just money. It was fun. Um, but at the same time, um, there's a little bit of uh, an addicting aspect to it, that um, that you have to be careful of. So yeah, that that article is pretty pretty good.
0: Yeah, I mean, on you know, the, as somebody who help, I wouldn't say run, but uh, is one of the people on the team triaging these bug bounty submissions that come in. It it's a good reminder um, of how important that it it is to be clear in your communication um, if it's a duplicate you know, maybe even say, Hey, good job. You know, we, yes, it's a duplicate. Um, and if possible, maybe, you know, depending on severity, depending, you know, maybe you can even throw a thank you in for, for it being a duplicate. Or if, you know, your team has decided, Hey, this is a this is something internally we had discussed, but we, you know, it's not something we, we ever, we, we can live with the risk. It's not a big deal. You know, again, maybe you can send a thank you communic Like when I say a thank you, I mean, you can, you can give, um, like even as little as a couple hundred bucks, we'll say as, as a thank you for their time. And, you know, but like really beyond the money part, just being very, uh, clear in your communication and having some empathy and kind of, um, I don't know, just not being terse and, you know, blunt or terse and um yeah, that's just not being yeah. terse, being being communicative.
2: You mean as, as someone who's triaging the the bounty, or the, the the submissions, right?
0: Right, right. Yeah, on the other side of it for making yeah. sure that yeah, that the cuz you you know, you want you want your the people participating to to come back and also to, you know, not burn out like this article talks about, so.
2: Yeah, absolutely yeah uh, i i remember at at saber i i wanted to explore the uh, idea of bug bounties um you know uh, because it was just starting to become a thing at that time and i didn't think uh it was it was ready for or, or either saber was ready or the bug bounty programs were ready but i remember um there's you guys know about security. text.
0: yes a little oh, really? it's like robots.txt but for the yeah, yeah.
2: For the security researchers that find vulnerabilities, they just, you know, it's a, it's a supposed, it should be a standard. It's, I mean, to me, it's a great idea. Like have a little text file on your site that says, hey, if you find a vulnerability on one of our systems, here's what you do. Here's who to contact. Here's the proper procedure. Um, Unfortunately, I couldn't even get them to, to interested in doing that. So it, um, but uh, security.sex is a great idea. It's easy to do, um, I wish every organization did it.
0: Yeah, it can be tough. I mean, that's that's often you see why like security people move on is when they you know like can you blame someone if you if you receive too much pushback when you're trying to improve things and you actually care? It's the same thing as like you know being being polite and communicative with your bounty researchers. Like you don't want to burn people out on like, hey, I care. I'm trying to help you and then, you know, you're, you're pushing back and not giving any good reasons, so, yeah. Well, we are coming up on an hour, Dave. I mean, this um, has been... There was... Uh,
1: sorry. Yeah, there's, no, yeah, we are. Um, there was one question that uh, somebody just asked, uh, John Doe, I guess. Um, he's, he's asking, I have a quick question. I've recently found that there's many environments that let you run code for testing with limited RAM CPU, but it give Gigabit connection, which is unmetered. This allows 300K uh, you know, PPS scans, right? Like, I, I guess, like...
0: What's the question? I'm confused.
1: I don't know. That's what, that's what I'm trying to figure out, is what exactly he's asking there. Well, maybe
0: it expands out. Perhaps no,
1: it's, it's a two-parter. It must be. So, sorry. I I thought there was going to be more to that.
0: Um, no, and I, you know, I I like... I like the fact that we we got because we were talking about this before we went live. We did. We don't get. It's not often that we we, we only had one other person who was actually developing a security product on the uh, podcast. That was Justin Collins. Who uh, uh, congratulations, by the way, Justin. His uh, Brakeman product was acquired by Synopsis. I still am curious to see what happens with that. Like, you know, I the the break from from what I understand, Brakeman still like. 're still the open source version I'm, I'm curious what happens with the uh, with everything else but um anyways point being you're the only out of 30 episodes you're only the second person that we actually were able to pick you know your brain on on these things so like thank you for coming on and talking a, you know a bit about like what you're what you're seeing these days absolutely
1: okay. yeah yeah we we appreciate it okay John finally. Did, or John Doe, whoever it is, did finally finish his question. So through his scans, he's detected unprotected hosts with petabytes worth of info data in, in huge corporations. What would be the best way to report the issues and spread awareness of these types of unmetered systems? Yeah, I don't know. I, like, you know, from my perspective, we're talking about the security tech stuff. Um, I mean, I think that would be your first go-to is figuring out who the security people are at those organizations. Otherwise, we're looking at something like a medium post to talk about the generic issue that he's seeing. Um, I mean, are there other avenues that you guys see for releasing those sorts of vulnerabilities?
0: You mean to, a, to, to, to disclosing to a company if, like, you find? Yeah. I'm not clear on the vulnerability, but like, and when you say unprotected hosts.
2: Yeah, like, I mean, ex- exposed data that's in the clear. It's
0: yeah. I mean, yeah, it might be
1: difficult. what it would be. I mean, uh, John, you know, or whoever it is that's asking, you know, if you want to hit us up, that that sounds like a deeper issue that we could probably talk through on a subsequent episode. Um, as far as exactly what it is you discovered, like you know, we could talk about it in generic or you could just give us a little bit more info about it and we could give you some advice or you could even jump on the Slack Slack channel if you're interested to talk through it. There's a bunch of people in there that work for different large organizations that would have um, good feedback on, you know, how to go about approaching something of that magnitude, right? Even Dave, you know, your, <laughs> <Sorry>. expertise on, <laughs> your expertise on like when you went through with CSRF and Netflix, right? You know, it's not necessarily an easy thing to push through some of those organizations. So,
2: yeah. And the thing is back, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but when I reached out to Netflix to tell them about the problem, I was fortunate they didn't accuse me of hacking them and try to prosecute me uh, because at the time I was... I was so naive and such a noob that I didn't know that sort of thing happened. But now if I found that type of thing, I probably wouldn't say anything just because there are organizations that that, um, if you try to be the the good guy and and tell them about their problems, they'll still accuse you and try to prosecute you for hacking.
0: Actually, so since we're on the topic and Chris Gates so for these are kind of connected. So Chris Gates made a comment that that's why I started laughing. It was he? you know, he said, hit up the CTO on LinkedIn, LinkedIn uh, which yeah, that was like why I started <laughs> laughing. So like, it's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty clever. Um, Chris Gates actually, uh, was around for this story. So, um, real quick, uh, on that note, I actually, I no longer ever report anything or even like touch DOD stuff. Um, Back before I started with y'all, I found a SQL injection in an Oracle-backed... Because um, I had this... Where's the book? I had... Um, what's his face? Uh, uh, Litchfield's... Uh, yeah, Litchfield's Oracle Hacker Handbook. Yeah. Oh, okay, and yeah. I worked for... At the time, I contracted for the Pentagon. So I was doing this stuff uh, uh, sometimes on site and sometimes remotely from my house. Anyways, long story short, uh, I was using like Google hacking. I was So uh, I found what I was looking for Oracle SQL injection string wise in a uh, military site and reported it. I was like, I don't know who to report this to. So I reported to a, a friend of a friend and that friend of a friend ended up being Chris Gates. So he, he, he uh, forwarded on the information. Uh, and uh, so next thing I know, I've got an NCIS um, case and investigator assigned to me. And uh <laughs> We still talk about to this day because I was shitting my pants. I thought for like, honestly, for two years, I was kind of waiting for uh, the handcuffs. I was waiting for, you know, them to raid my house and tell me, you know, like I'm a criminal. Um, And it was because they had a really, um, again, a very basic Oracle SQL injection on a very, very important site. I was in the Navy, so I knew it was an important site. I knew what it was used for. And again, went through the, you know, the proper channels like a friend of a friend. And uh, I believe Chris Gates was working on the red team at that time. Anyways, that's sort of the, 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 the story there, but yeah, that's, that's why I don't, I, for all I, will if I come across SQL injection and in the the DOD's most important site, I don't, I'm not saying a word. <laughs> I mean, you can all have that. I mean, I won't touch it, you know, so anything DOD, you won't ever see me. The one exception being for, you know, SYNAC and that having access to that source code, but that was all, you know, agreement, legal agreements and protected and all that stuff. So.
2: Yeah, I don't blame you, Ken.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I was actually I was working with you guys while I was still like mm, fingers crossed. <laughs> so
1: yeah. now, so so why didn't you disclose that in the interview? Come on, man, that's like <laughs> important information.
0: Chris says no more free bugs. That's exactly right. No, no more free scare bugs me into to... thinking I'm going to prison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no more free <laughs> bugs.
2: Word. Well yeah, thanks guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Um if anyone wants to uh say hi, I'm going to I got a really busy conference schedule coming up. So, um uh, like the month of October is crazy. I mean, I'll be I'll be at uh Security Congress, ISC squared Security Congress in New Orleans. I'll be uh at LasCon in Austin, I'll be at USA in San Jose. Um uh, Basque, the Boston Application Security Conference, um, so yeah, if you're at any of those, definitely come up and say hi.
0: Awesome, I know John Pullen and John Callahan, I saw on Twitter, they got uh, accepted, um, so they'll you know, I don't know if you know them, but we can always intro and you get, they'll be at the Boston one, and then we'll see you at Absec USA.
2: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I just got an email uh, fr- uh, from the, the, the Basque group today asking me if I could do a talk, so I may sure. be doing a talk too.
0: You should. <laughs> you should.
2: You've got good things to say. Hey, you, you got you got thing. a lot of
1: good data. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> just, just start presenting on the data. That'll, that'll be good. That sounds like
2: a whole other project I didn't plan on, but yeah. um, I, maybe I can come up with something or, or rehash something else. <laughs> no, so the talk data about this would thing be. c
1: Surf, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah, the okay. data would be interesting. Honestly, it really would be like um, showing trends over time. Because we're all curious, like, what's what's what for somebody who has access to that kind of data? Like, what's like I said, what's what's going away? What's becoming more of a problem?
2: Yep, it's it's uh it's all available and being anonymized, of course.
0: Of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, Seth, did we have anything to mention? Um, before not, we... uh,
1: not really, uh, outside of the fact that uh, our secure code training right or like how to conduct secure code reviews training for appsec USA is actually filling up so if you're interested in that um, go ahead and register I, I don't know how many seats we're gonna have available but we are uh, we got notification this week that it's you know it, it's getting full so there may not be that many seats still available that's towards the end of October or yeah middle of October sorry
0: yeah we got uh, AppSec Melbourne.
1: Yep. AppSec Melbourne. Um, I am going to push out some hacker tracker updates here pretty quick. Uh, there's some new conferences that are going to be supported by it, Torcon and DerbyCon. Um, so, you know, if anybody's interested in that, you know, for sure, watch your iOS version or your Android version. Um, and you'll see some updates and you'll see some other content getting pushed into that more and more, more and more of those conferences will be in there. Um, I think that's everything from my end, Ken, uh, Dave, once again, it's good to see you even just virtually, right? It's been a while. Uh, Thanks for coming on.
2: Absolutely. Uh, We'll see you next month then in San Jose for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe we'll do a special, uh, you know, absolute appsec. I don't know.
0: I noticed something that I wanted to call out. Uh, Seth, can you, I noticed your shirt. Can you show, can you show your shirt real quick? Yeah, sure. It's, it's, Beats by Shroot. Yep. <laughs> I love it. I love that show. I love Dwight Shroot. It's awesome. Yeah, I caught a glimpse of it. And I'm like, oh man, that's an awesome shirt.
1: <laughs> I-, I figured you, you would enjoy it, right? So, but
0: um, So, so yeah. is there anything you want to leave people with, Dave, before we sign off?
2: Uh, well, just um, I would say uh, thanks everyone for listening and watching. Um, support your local OWASP chapter. And uh, this is my uh, OWASP beer mug that I'm drinking water out of. Um, But uh, anyway, thank you guys again. I appreciate it. Uh, It's been fun. Yeah.
1: Thanks for coming, Dave.
0: Okay. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Have a good night, everyone.